from PRX. Stew. 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 Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... She was really a character who sort of emerged from the shadows and kind of crept up on me. I'm now going to go drink from a bubbler. I never heard of bubbler in my life. Drinking cutty sock in the park with Maki Mark. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Like, I guess, half of America, I am very disheartened that somebody with Donald Trump's instincts and record of statements and overtly racist supporters has been given the biggest platform of all. Bully pulpit never meant this. But... It also makes me appreciate even more the people I've talked to recently who have extremely thoughtful, reasonable, nuanced things to say about race. People like Britt Bennett. A couple of years ago, she wrote a brilliant piece about racism and policing for Jezebel. It was called, I Don't Know What to Do with Good White People. It provoked a huge discussion online and off. So I was happy to have her come into the studio a few weeks ago to talk about her new novel. Her first novel, it's called The Mothers. Uh, what a good book you've written. Thank you. I appreciate that. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the characters are members of a black church in Southern California. In particular, one teenaged girl who is a member of that church. A lot of the book is told in the voice of a group of church mothers who act as a kind of Greek chorus throughout the novel. The book actually opens with them talking. We didn't believe when we first heard, because you know how church folk can gossip. Like the time we all thought First John, our head usher, was messing around on his wife because Betty, the pastor's secretary, caught him cozying up at brunch with another woman, a young, fashionable woman at that, one who switched her hips when she walked, even though she had no business switching anything in front of a man married 40 years. You could forgive a man for stepping out on his wife once. But to romance that young woman over buttered croissants at a sidewalk cafe? Now, that was a whole other thing. But before we could correct First John, he showed up at Upper Room Chapel that Sunday with his wife and the young hip-switching woman, a great-niece visiting from Fort Worth, and that was that. I had that first line... This idea of church folks can gossip, so you don't know really what to take seriously. And I was working with that first line for a while. Originally, the book was kind of in this more voiced third person. Um, But I reached a point where I was just like, okay, what if I located that voice somewhere? It felt like a female voice, and Uh it felt like an older voice. Uh So I started thinking about the idea of church mothers um, who can be sort of uh, the center of the church, the sort of voice of that community who are supposed to sort of be this moral compass, but in the case of the book, not always the most morally inclined characters. We thought it might be that type of secret, although we have to admit it had felt different, tasted different, too. All good secrets have a taste before you tell them, and if we'd taken a moment to swish this one around our mouths, we might have noticed the sourness of an unripe secret plucked too soon, stolen and passed around before its season. But we didn't. 
we shared this sour secret. A secret that began the spring Nadia Turner got knocked up by the pastor's son and went to the abortion clinic downtown to take care of it. You grew up in a church-going family. Yeah, I um, I went to Catholic church for a while. My mom's Catholic. Really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah, my mom's Catholic. She grew up in Louisiana. So I went to Catholic church when I was younger, and my dad's Protestant, so I also went to his church. And my mom's church was mostly white. My dad's was mostly— think. Yeah, my dad's was mostly black. Yeah. Um, so I had these very different cultural experiences going to these two very different churches as a child. So I think I've always been kind of interested in church as a space that— can be so um, culturally different, even though people are sort of professing to believe the same thing. Yeah, how interesting! You, you there's you, if you haven't written already, there are whole essays about uh, Protestantism versus Catholicism mm-hmm. and Black Protestantism versus White Catholicism. Yeah, you know? I'm really interested in, in Black Catholicism also. Um, uh, that's something I've been thinking about because my mom, she went to like this segregated Catholic church in Louisiana yeah. um, when she was a kid. And I remember thinking like, man, like how could you go to a church that's segregated? Like how could you sit there? But that's just what they did. They had their religious beliefs and they were willing to sort of stomach the indignity of going to a segregated church because they believed that this was how they wanted to worship. How interesting. I remember she told me that the church was, it was shaped like a cross and the black people had to sit in the sort of outer arms of the cross so that the priest didn't have to look at you when he was speaking. Um, and that's something like, that's an image I've never forgotten. So I, when you were saying segregated church, I thought from, I thought you meant, oh, it's a church that only black people go no. to. Bad enough. <laughs> this was actually apartheid yes. church. Pretty much. I mean, the, the great, Holy like the, the cemetery to this day is still segregated. So yeah. even when you die, people care about where they, where they leave yeah. your rotting flesh. Yeah. yeah. Go to Monticello. You'll see that they <laughs> yeah. care there too. And your grandmother, she was like a sharecropper, right? Yeah. Yeah. My mother's family actually they were sharecroppers like my aunts they picked cotton before they went to school yeah. you know that was their experience and my dad grew up in inner city Los Angeles um, I'm basically one generation outside of poverty whether right. it's like rural or urban yeah. um, and both of my parents worked extremely hard to put me in a position where I could do something like write this book right your main character Nadia, and this isn't really a spoiler alert because we already know about <laughs> it uh, decides to have an abortion was that as you were, as this book was germinating, something like from the get-go, you thought, oh, I, th- that's going to be part of this story? You know, originally it was something that was sort of lingering in the background of the story. Um, it was sort of this girl was harboring the secret, and she was just sort of a minor character who went to the church, and you realize that huh. this is going to affect the church in this large way. So she was really a, a character who sort of emerged from the shadows and kind of crept up on me. But yeah, I realized eventually that she was sort of the engine that was driving uh, the story forward, the secret that she had, the way in which it affects the pastor's family, and a way in which it affects the whole church. How interesting that you began with the idea that this is not only a secondary character and this is her secret. Like, as we heard in the first few sentences, it's no longer a secret. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite an evolution. Uh, you've said that when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, uh, you knew the worst thing you could do was to get pregnant. Nadia um, knows that as well and says, this is what my life will be if I have this baby. Not get pregnant, but have a baby. This will ruin my life. Now that you're 26, does that fear as the greatest fear uh, feel correct or outsized? Or Yeah, it feels really bizarre now that I'm a little bit older because I'm just like, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to be pregnant. But I feel like, you know, like I was saying, like, 
growing up as a kid who's one generation out of poverty, I think there's a way in which, you know, you're so aware of how precarious your situation is and how close you can be to sort of slipping back into that type of situation. So I think that I had that awareness myself and was sort of instilled this lesson of like, you have to go to college there. You know, we this is what we expect from you. This is what we have worked so hard for you to be able to do this. Uh, a couple of years ago, you published this essay in Jezebel that got a tremendous amount of attention, which I guess enabled you to suddenly be like, hey, buy my novel, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, that that essay wrote, um, you know, I, my friend was an editor at Jezebel, my friend Gia, and she had been asking some of us in the MFA program, like, hey, send me stuff. And I didn't think of myself as a nonfiction writer, right. so I never did. Um, but then I felt particularly motivated to write something um, that I was thinking about, about race and, and intentions and how much intentions matter. And this is somewhere around the Ferguson blowing up time? Yeah, no. this was it was sort of that period in, in December where there was like a series of non-indictments. Right. Um, Ferguson, also— uh, Eric Garner in right, New York. Right, Eric yeah. Garner. Um, so— I, you know, I was in that space and, and kind of wrote this essay. And yeah, that essay, it led my agent to find me. Yeah. It led to a lot of opportunities in a way that I never imagined when I was just like feeling emotional and writing. Yeah. The title is, I don't know what to do with good white people. It's to us, white people who think of ourselves as good white people, it's generous to us, but like doesn't let us off the hook either. Um, uh, it seems like it was written for all th- all these good white people, including, as you say, the ones who were in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think I generally just I try to be generous when I yeah. when I'm thinking about people in life, and you know, I try to assume that people are generally good or want to be good yeah. and, and want to be helpful. Um, but it was something that was sort of nagging me is if people are not intending to be racist or are not intending to to do these terrible um, right. these terrible violent things, if a police officer is not intending. I think often we think about racism as just a feeling people have in their hearts and racists are just bad people. Right. But my thing, my question was sort of like, okay, but what about good people who are racist? You know, my generation particularly, like I was saying about my mom, she grew up in the Jim Crow South. That was a very different experience of race. She didn't have to read into people's intentions because she pretty much knew where she was positioned as a black woman in that time and, and how white people saw her. But I think for my generation, like... You know, I grew up in, particularly I grew up in like an integrated sort of town. I went to very diverse schools. I have, you know, a lot of white friends and people in my life who've been great to me. Right. Um, So thinking about where I'm positioned, I think it becomes a lot more complicated in a way. Right. Um, Your father was a prosecutor and you've written in that essay about how he was at least once profiled by the police. Your father is pulled over uh, by white, I assume, officers, cuffed made to sit down, uh, and he basically just goes, he just doesn't move a muscle. Describe how that incident ended. The way he explained it to me was that he was just so shocked that he didn't even, couldn't even think of doing anything, um, and that that was sort of what kept him safe, the fact that he was just really shocked and overwhelmed by what was happening. But eventually they heard on the radio that it was like, I don't know if they'd caught the guy or if they were spotting him somewhere else, but that was basically the reason why he was released. They realized that this is the wrong person. But it wasn't because they believed him when he was saying that. Really? They didn't look at his ID, ID or- nothing. And, and, you know, the fact that he was, like, coming back from Bible study, I'm just like— you know, you hear this narrative of just, you know, well, if you just behave and if you just do this, then the police won't bother you. Yeah. It's like, this is literally... I'm a cop. I was at church. What do you <laughs> right. want? <laughs> right. This is a guy who works for the D's office coming yeah. back from church and really close to something terrible happening. Uh, well, it, it's a terrific book. And uh, I'm, it was a pleasure to meet you. And I'm eager to read the next one or whatever. You <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Your name is kind of like a Fox News anchor. 
Do you know what I mean? They're all called like Brit Bennett. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my next career. There you go. No. There, they could use you. Yeah, I'd be very popular on that network. I talked to Britt Bennett in October, and The Mothers is out now. The reading was performed by Keisha Lewis. Coming up, how you can figure out where somebody is from in the United States by the particular words they use. For me, it's pretty easy. It's uh, Mischief Night, Hoagies, Sneakers, and that's pretty much all you need to know. Regional Expressions, that's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. When you're in a deli ordering a sandwich, do you ask for a sub or a grinder or a hoagie or a hero or a po'boy wedge or an Italian? Your answer says a lot about where you're from. Josh Katz is an infographics editor at the New York Times, and in 2013, he created an online quiz trying to capture American dialects. It turned out to be the Times' most popular feature of the year. 350,000 readers filled it out. Now, Katz has turned that idea into a terrific book. It's called Speaking American, How Y'all Use and You Guys Talk. And I love the way he's done it. It's full of these multicolored maps that look like election results, except instead of showing how the country votes, it shows how it talks. It shows linguistic districts, really, like where people say scratch paper and then where they say scrap paper. I wanted to talk to Josh about the book and to surprise him with a challenging game show with him as the contestant. Josh Katz, welcome to Studio 360. Thanks for having me. Um, so you are not, by profession, a linguist. That's right. So my formal training is in statistics. You can apply statistics to really anything. So a lot of the work that I do at The Times is focused more on elections data and polling, but it applies equally well to something like linguistics. Right. Anyhow, we surveyed the staff at WNYC and, and found people who grew up in various parts of the United States. They're going to come in here and uh, you can quiz them, ask them your questions and try to figure out uh, where they're from. You have your book here as a reference and, and a computer. So that means you've got all kinds of access to data. And Josh, here come our first two challengers. Hello. 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 Uh, who are you and what do you do here at WNYC? I'm Lee Hill and I am the managing editor for digital here at WNYC. I'm Susie Lechtenberg, the executive producer of More Perfect. This is Josh Katz. So he's going to ask you questions. Go ahead. Bring it. All right. What would you call a sweetened carbonated beverage? Soda. Soda. Is that what you called it growing up too? All my life. All right. I will always call it that um, unapologetically. So the words, I'll spell them for you. The first word is C-O-T. The second word is C-A-U-G-H-T. Do you pronounce those the same or differently? It's the same word, caught. What? Caught and caught. I think that whole caught-caught thing is just made up to baffle me. You're gaslighting me, but go ahead. Sensing a hint of judgment here. What would you call the thing from which you drink water at school? That's a water fountain. <laughs> so I, I used to call it a bubbler, and then I moved out east, and I started calling it a water fountain. So what about the uh, rubber-soled shoes that you would wear in gym class? Sneakers. Tennis shoes. It's got to be Wisconsin. He's right? 
He's right. Awesome. Milwaukee. Although that's not how we say it there. Yes. Milwaukee. Wow. How good. You can really do it. Um, What gave you away was bubbler. There's only two places in the country that they really say that. And one is Wisconsin and the other is kind of Rhode Island and parts of Massachusetts. Wow. Huh. There we have it. And so once you said bubbler and then also tennis shoes, because out in Rhode Island it is sneakers. So Wisconsin. And one of the things I liked about this book is I never heard of bubbler in my life. Okay. Uh, All right. Thank thank you. you, I'm now going to go drink from a bubbler. Good. Um, Okay. Now back to Susie. What would you call a sandwich on a long roll with a variety of meats and cheeses? That is a sub. That's a... Like, you're so certain of the epistemology of life. It is what it is, Kurt. Yes, I I understand now. This one's tough. I believe in you. I have two guesses, and I don't feel very confident in either of them. (laughs) I'm going to say North Jersey. Oh, no. Sorry. Talk about judgment. She's disgusted at that suggestion. Florida? No. Uh, when I took your quiz online, you you guessed the exact town I'm from. I don't know. I think you broke it. <laughs> Do you want me to tell you? Yes. Yeah. I'm from Kansas City. Not even close. Thanks. Thanks, Susie. Well, that was fun, seeing the expert lose. Okay, Josh, uh, let's play another round. All right. I know you, but the listeners don't. So say who you are and what you do. I'm Ed Haber, and I'm an engineer here at uh, WNYC and WQXR. I'm Jenny Lawton, and I'm the executive producer of Studio 360. All right. So we're going to start with, what do you call the rubber-soled shoes that you would wear in gym class? They're called sneakers. Gym shoes. So the word P-A-J-A-M-A-S, could you pronounce that? Pajamas. Pajamas. I say pajamas. You say pajamas. And what would you call a big road on which you drive relatively fast? Expressway. I know the basis of that, even if I didn't already know. Don't tell. So I'm going to go with Chicago? Yep. Ding. So Chicago and Cincinnati are the two places that say gym shoes. Really? So as soon as you answered that, it's pretty clear it's going to be one of those. And, do they, and they don't say expressway in uh, Cincinnati? It's not as common, no. Huh. Wow. Well, there you go. Awesome. Okay, one challenger left. It is just you, Ed. How would you pronounce cot and caught? Cot, caught. Not the same pronunciation. Good. Uh, I don't understand how they even could be. And, and even worse, as I discovered from Josh's book, it's becoming truer and truer over time. Right. And for a few questions in the book, I'm able to chart how those words are right. changing over time. And cotton caught, the area of the country where the words are pronounced the same is kind of gradually expanding. Well, we'll have to fight back. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, what would you call the act of covering a house with toilet paper? It's not something that I ever heard of. Really? Growing up. You must well, you were a nice boy then. Yeah. <laughs> TP. You TP the house. It wasn't from my culture. Uh-huh. What would you call the night before Halloween? October 30th? I mean, again, this was a revelation is, is, to me. Is, is, there, is, there, is there a name for that? There apparently is. is. Many of them. Where I grew up in South Jersey, that is known as Mischief Night. I've never heard of that before. Um, you also might hear Devil's Night or Gate Night, Goosey Night. There's no, I think whole... that these are all from the United Kingdom. That's these, completely these aren't even American. That's completely new to me. Yeah, me never too. heard of that. Exactly. Not a single one of those. Good. High five. 
All right, so I think I can do it with one more question. How do you pronounce the word L-A-W-Y-E-R? Lawyer? That's how I pronounce it. Okay, I think I got it. So I'm going to go with New York. You want to get closer, like where in New York? Are you? Is it New York City? The city. So where, where did you grow up? Brooklyn. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. So you're from South Jersey. Uh, yeah, that's right. And so what do you say that the Josh Katz examining you would say, oh, yeah, he's from South Jersey? For me, it's pretty easy. It's uh, Mischief Night, Hoagies, Sneakers, and that's pretty much all you need to know. Huh. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has not done songs about any of those things yet. Oh. oh as far as I know. Yeah. One thing interesting about most of the people who you examined uh, today, they didn't have particularly strong regional accents which kind of made what you do more impressive because it really is just on what word you use for this thing or that and, and how you pronounce words. Yeah, and especially because accent is very strongly tied to uh, socioeconomic class. Right. So even if someone grew up with an accent, if they are sort of moving up into a higher socioeconomic class, uh -huh. they will shed their accent, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. But with a lot of the dialect words in the book, you won't really change whether you're saying catty corner or kitty corner. Right, it's not, right. Uh, so a lot of times those things will persist. It's so interesting. I, I, I want more of these. Do another book, Josh. Will do. Thank you. Josh Katz's new book is out now, and it's called Speaking American, How Y'all Use and You Guys Talk. Y'all ready for this? And if you listeners would like to take the quiz that Josh created and out of which this book came, you may, the link to it is online at studio360.org. Regional expressions, obviously, can give strong hints of where you grow up, but accents can be an absolute dead giveaway. If you could take one guy to an island with you and you knew you'd be safe because he was the best man, he was going to keep you happy, if it was between me and your father, who would you take? My daddy. I think you're wrong about that. That is the new film Manchester by the Sea. And you can hear in Casey Affleck's voice that he really has the accent right because he was born and raised in and around Boston. Other actors have to learn to sound like they're from Southie or Dorchester or wherever – which stumps even great ones. I've been talking about this for decades with my Boston friends, and finally I convinced one of them, Eric Malinsky, to go try to figure out why this is so. I grew up in the Boston area, and believe me, nobody sounds like this. You know, you're not from here anymore. You know, down in New York, people are like, let's get divorced. You marry the butler, and I'll be a gay optimum. Or this. We'd miss a lot less if you made your informants available to us, and of course... Or this. I got an informer in my outfit. Or this. I, I thought I was supposed to tell the truth here. You here. are, Christ, yes. When a guy comes in here, gets... That is Julianne Moore from 30 Rock and a bunch of actors from The Departed, which is one of my favorite movies, but everybody is bungling the accent in a completely different way, except for Matt Damon and Mark Wahlberg, who grew up in Boston. I mean, they're all great actors, but... The Boston accent is like their Waterloo. Jack Kenny's a charming guy. This is what a real Bostonian sounds like. And we have one friend of ours who said, the hell with the Kennedys, the old man was, was a bootlegger and everything else. Then he met Jack Kennedy. Next thing you do, he was on his back saying, Jack, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? <laughs>
That was my uncle Mike, who I interviewed about the time he worked with the Kennedys on local elections. At this point, Hollywood studios have realized that if they want that authentic flavor, they need to cast local. That's why a company called Boston Casting recently held an open call. Hundreds of locals lined up to audition in this nondescript part of town full of warehouses and row houses. One of the people waiting in line was Cher Oney. She has no film experience. Her friends made her go. Just because everybody teases me and says I have a wicked Boston accent. <laughs> you have a wicked accent. I go, I do not. Yeah, you do. You don't say R for anything. <laughs> you run your words all together. The group consensus of the people in line is that Hollywood actors just overdo it. Instead of saying, uh, you want a glass of water, they'll make it sound worse. Like, water. You know, like, like it's just over the top and it, it like ruins it for me, you know. Park the car. You know, they accentuate it. Park the car. It's all one word. There's no break. <laughs> of course, that's the old joke. People ask a Bostonian to say, park the car in Harvard Yard. But you actually can't park your car in Harvard Yard. It's a college green. So what would be a better phrase? Can you go to the packy for me? It's the liquor store. <laughs> Drinking cutty sock in the park after dark with Maki Mark. Scared of sharks. <laughs> oh, how about I live on a large farm? I live on a large farm. Those last two are my parents. Except nobody does in Boston live on a large farm. Well, why, why, why don't they live on a large farm? <laughs> they can live on a large farm. Okay, it just depends on, I guess they wouldn't live in the city. No. So why do Bostonians talk this way? I asked Stephen Gabbis, a dialect coach who's worked with a ton of famous actors. He actually has a unique accent of his own, being part Irish. These are the accents that came over with the settlers uh, from East Anglia, basically, uh, Norfolk and Suffolk. So if you were like at the time of like um, uh, Plymouth Rock and all that, mm -hmm. they, 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 they sounded like this. They'd say, we're taking a ride down to Great Yarmouth if you'd like to come with us, Eric. I don't know what time. We'll be back about five o'clock, I think. You sound vaguely like um, my neighbor that I grew up with, who I used to always say sounded like the Pepperidge Farm guy. You see, Pepperidge Farm remembers. Oh, that, well, that's where it came from. And, and, and the dropping of the R's came from the Saxon influence, the Germanic influence, because mo a lot of England pronounced all of its R's. It's what you call a rhotic accent. Wait, wait, so, but the rhotic is voicing every R, but they dropped R's. Yeah, they dropped R's because of the German influence. They started to drop them when the, uh, the Germans married into the royal family, hmm. the Hanoverian influence. It's funny, I always thought it was the Irish accent that influenced the Boston accent. That, no, that's part, that, that, that reinforced it. Ah. So then you get, uh, if, if you're like from the south of Ireland, you say, um, uh, no, don't be starting no trouble. You, you, you're joining the army, whether you like it or not, you know, if you're from Dublin. So then that, that would just reinforce that ah sound, the ah sound, like army going to army. Hmm. And then army, then you drop in stat and you drop you the British influence where they drop the R's. Now, dialect coaches get really peeved when they're told that the Boston accent is the only one that an actor can't learn. All the Boston natives say, you, you guys, you never do us right. Shut up. I mean, a lot, there's really some good work on Boston accents. You know, they just have this thing... People that come from the place have this arrogant thing about nobody can do our accent. I thought the accents on Spotlight were pretty good. Stephen Gabbis was on set to give notes, but he was mainly working with Michael Keaton. He played the Boston Globe reporter Walter Robinson. So we found little things just enough to give you uh, uh, dropping some R's here and there, but not all the time. I found like certain vowels like uh, Robbie. 
you know, Robbie, honestly, that kind of a rounded awe sound, phonetically, as they call it. So we just found little sounds that would keep him there, keep him in the Boston area, but nothing too extreme. This is how it happens, isn't it, Pete? What's that? Guy leans on a guy, and suddenly the whole town just looks the other way. By the way, here's what the real Robbie sounds like. It changed our concept of what we should report. After that, we consciously looked for stories that involve victimized populations. It's pretty spot on, right? The other sound I was going to mention is the, the N-O-T, rather than an R sound, as most Americans do. You go to not. And it's almost elongated. Although I find when I, when I hear Boston accent in the movies or TV, one of the things that often feels wrong to me is when they hit that too hard. Yeah, yeah. When they say, like, yeah. like you know, uh, are you a cop? Or that's very, yeah. you know, yeah. common. It's, when it's hit too hard, it always rings false for me. And, and, and what, I, what I try to do, and I did this with, with Michael, mm-hmm. uh, squeeze the air out of it. Make it quick. Not. But Angela Perry says there is more to playing a Bostonian than tweaking vowels and dropping R's. She runs Boston Casting, which is holding those auditions for locals. Bostonians tend to stand different, walk different. There's something about our persona that the Bostonian has when they walk in the room. We're real. We're real. We're not New Yorkers. We're not L.A. people, we're real. And that's, as well as the tax incentive, I do think that's why producers from L.A. keep coming back here. Now, these auditions are not for a specific movie. There's just going to be a lot of filming in Boston this year. So I want to get all my ducks in a row so that I can have all the best Boston accents on file and ready to go. All they have to do is say their names and where they're from. Go ahead. Um, hi, my name is John Fitzgerald. I live in Norwood, but I'm originally from JP. Yeah, you're uh, good. Rosendale. You're good. You Woo-hoo. don't have to say anything yeah. else. And I love to park my car, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. Great. Hi, I'm Kathy McCarthy. I'm originally from you're Somerville. You're good, Kathy McCarthy. <laughs> 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 oh, oh. I love it. I love it. It's like she even says her name right, right? I'm Kathy McCarthy. <laughs> it's interesting. Bostonians are usually wary of being reduced to a funny accent. Now they're welcoming Hollywood and the attention of the world because they see that their accents can be valuable natural resources, like maple syrup or lobsters. Thanks to Eric Malinsky for that important investigation. Eddie Lee from Medford. Yeah. I'm a firefighter. Yeah, good. Uh, my I father gave me my supper. I ate it in the parlor, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he said if I didn't eat it, yeah, he'd lock me in the cellar. I love that one. And the most famous Boston accent ever? I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And we'll Nailing that is crucial to any... JFK parody. And the original gold standard impression of Kennedy is so absolutely spot on, it was part of an album that won the Grammy for Album of the Year in 1963. While Kennedy was president, Von Meter played him on the record. It was called The First Family, and other funny people played other Kennedys. I was in third grade at the time, and it was huge. I don't think there has been a comedy album ever that was so familiar to so many people. To explain how this team of 
unknown writers created this one-of-a-kind, award-winning blockbuster album. We got the story from a comedy historian. I'm Ronald L. Smith. I'm the author of Comedy on Record, as well as Who's Who in Comedy. And from the man who co-wrote and produced that album. I'm Bob Booker. I'm a TV producer, album producer, writer, director, editor, spent my life in the entertainment world. At that time, no one actually had done what people believed was this outrageous idea of making fun of the president and his family. We took this attitude. We thought that Jack Kennedy was a movie star president. He had this tremendous sense of humor. He was young. He had the beautiful wife two children. We did a demo of the album to sell it, you know, recorded about 15 minutes of it, and we shopped it around New York, and uh, we were thrown out of 12 of the major record companies. One actually threatened us to get out, and the big labels like Columbia and Capital and RCA, they were just too involved with the government to ever insult the President of the United States, and they thought this would be insulting. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you from a typical American home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Since January of 1960, this family of smiling and happy people have undergone a change. You might say they've been engaged in a new and different type of experiment. Sir, as head of this average family, what was this new experience undergone by you and the members of your household? Well, after uh, two years of brushing with the Crest toothpaste, our group... Our group had uh, 21% fewer cavities with Crest. Actually, what we were looking to do, I guess, was a, what would be an old-fashioned radio show. We had a cast of people, and we did sketches. And strangely enough, Vaughn Meter looked a little bit like Jack Kennedy. Uh, Naomi Brassard, who played Jackie, was, I mean, she really looks like her. And she did the best impression of Jackie Kennedy ever. Now, if you'd care to follow me down this hall to the next room, as we go, I should like to point out the various paintings on the wall. Yes, I wish you would point them out. Well, there's this one and this one. <laughs> And that great big one over there. The First Family was the fastest rising album ever. Fastest rising album of all time. A million copies sold within one month. It was this incredible phenomenon of uh, a small record label nobody knew, a comedian that nobody had ever heard of, a comedy writing team nobody had ever heard of. It didn't succeed that much as a political satire album. It succeeded as just a funny album of... Uh, little sketches. Now down onto the floor for this week's press conference. Yes, well, there is no opening statement. I think I will just take the uh, first question. Sir, we understand that on-the-spot nuclear inspection might not be necessary. Do you have a new way that we can tell what the Russians are doing without actual on-the-spot inspection in the Soviet Union? Yes, we are asking everyone to uh, be very, very quiet. <laughs> One thing that is part of this uh, perfect storm about the first family is that it hit on so many levels, and one of them was simply the Boston accent. Nobody had heard a Boston accent uh, before. 
all of a sudden you have this guy with this voice and this cadence and it was considered really hilarious going back to the old school of Parkia Carcass and uh, ethnic uh, Jewish uh, and, and Irish voices. A lot of the humor on The First Family was just purely in the cadence of uh, John F. Kennedy's voice. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government has promised... And while they were making this record, the Cuban Missile Crisis arose. ...of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The Cuban Crisis was in October of 1962, the exact night we were recording the album. Thank God the audience waiting to hear this comedy album recorded uh, hadn't heard it. But 30 minutes later, we recorded the album. So here is Kennedy at 7 o'clock saying we're about to go to war, and here we are at 7.30 doing jokes about... The first family. Family, family, family. Jack, there's just too much family. Can't we ever get away alone? Tomorrow. I, I promise tomorrow we'll go away together uh, tomorrow. No more family for a while now, I promise. Now, uh, turn off the light. Good night, Jackie. Good night, Jack. Good night, Bobby. Good night, Ethel. <laughs> First Family reinvented the idea of sketch comedy, audio sketch comedy. You know, I think, uh, I think we're all bozos on this bus. Firesign Theater, Credibility Gap, and Congress of Wonders, Cheech and Chong even. They all ran with it. And uh, there were albums that you just purely listened to. There was sound effects going on. There were interesting voices going on. That all came from the First Family. The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. It's kind of sad in a way that the album had a sequel to it, which did not get a lot of airplay. There was First Family Volume 2, and unfortunately, not too long after that, the assassination of President Kennedy happened, and the second album disappeared. My secretary called and said... Kennedy's been shot. I said, I want the uh, album. Well, there were two albums at that time. We'd done a follow-up. But I said, take them both off the market right now, and I want them chopped up. I do not want to sit and try to cash in on this tragedy. It became a collector's album because there were so few copies of it that anybody could find. I had a conversation with Caroline Kennedy about a year ago. And she was very anxious to have the masters of these albums in the Kennedy Library in Boston. That's the greatest compliment that we could ever receive for this album. Sir? Yes? When will we send a man to the moon? Whenever uh, Senator Goldwater wants to go. (laughs) That was Ron Smith and Bob Booker talking about the comedy album The First Family. That LP, as we used to call records, was selected to be preserved in the National Recording Registry. Our story was produced by Ben Manila for BMP Audio. Coming up, when a terminal diagnosis becomes your material. She made this 
creative act part of her dying, and the dying became itself a creative act. How an artist continued making her film on her deathbed. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. Leonor Caraballo and Abu Farman were married and collaborated on lots and lots of art projects. And when Caraballo was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2008, she wanted to somehow make sense of the disease, artfully, visually. I hadn't seen this tumor. I, I knew it wanted to kill me, but I didn't really understand what it meant. So they took some MRI images of her tumor and then used a 3D printer to create sculptures and jewelry of the gnarl cancer itself. For me, it's a reminder that I, uh, I hate the word survivor, but that I, I'm here and this uh, thing is out of my body and, you know, and I'm, I feel more powerful than it. We aired a story about that project back in 2012. Sadly, since then, Caraballo has died. Her husband and collaborator Farman told us it was all the worse because they thought her health problems were completely behind her. It was five years in. Nobody had any issues. The scans were clean. The doctors were confident. We were all confident. It was almost at that stage where you could start forgetting. And I, in the meantime, introduced her to ayahuasca, which is plant, a hallucinogenic and, and medicinal plant um, used in the Amazon. And so just as it was her habit, she never did anything sort of half-assed. So she just sort of tried to go and find the, the best practitioner and so on. And after a bit of research, she found somebody that she thought was she could work with. She just went to Peru. I, didn't, I was teaching at the time. I didn't go. She returned and she said two things. One was that while she took ayahuasca this time in Peru, she saw her own death. Everything seemed so sure at that time, medically speaking. You know, I thought, well, yes, I mean, this is one of the things ayahuasca, the vine, does. It's called the vine of the dead. It, it reveals your death to you and it confronts you on that existential level. And that's more or less how I interpreted it. At the same time, she came back and she was stunned and she said, there's life on every surface. And so she, she said very quickly after that, I want to make a film. Matteo, her co-director, and Leo went on a trip to the Amazon to do research. Once it was established that we're going to start this film, we're going to start writing it, they're going to start writing and we're going to look for financing. On that trip... She felt a pain in her chest. She said immediately, it's cancer. Uh, it was in her ribs. She called up her surgeon. The surgeon said, it's impossible. You've been so clean. The surgery five years ago was great. There's no indication. This is just probably some muscular thing. We'll look at it when you come back. She comes back. MRIs show tumors in her bones. Biopsy confirms it. And the metastasis starts. We had to face that question. What do we do? Do you continue or do you stop? Uh, the question of how to, how to make that decision, how to, how to evaluate things, what's worth what? How much life and what kind of life? How much time, what kind of time? 
she went on a trial drug that stabilized uh, the spread. It seemed to to have been halted temporarily anyway. But still, it was clear that if she were to go on a shoot, that her body would be working on something else instead of working on managing the cancer. At the same time, she said, I don't have time and I don't want to just sit here wait for death. I want to do this film. But, you know, we were complicit in this together and we knew and she knew that we risk hastening her death in this. Morally, emotionally, it's very fraught. It's it's a very complicated thing to manage. But we dove in and we knew that we had to actually accelerate things, not go through the usual channels of making a film. We just had to finish the script ASAP, get going. When we got down to the Amazon to shoot, she said, this is crazy. I said, we can go back. And then 10 minutes later, she said, no, let's keep going. The plot developed because the film had to have a plot, but then eventually the plot also became autobiographical. Uh, it's the story of an American woman named Angelina who goes down to the Amazon in search of something like uh, a miracle. Did you just arrive? Yeah. Today. How long have you been here? Uh, I don't get she meets there a young Shipibo shaman, and through these ceremonies, he lets her know that the real disease, as he says, is susto, which is the disease of fear. And he, in turn, is going blind, so she helps him along the way move towards an understanding that his job is, in the end, to see in the dark and to see with ayahuasca, not to see just in the world. And so he takes on his commitment to shamanism. I think what she did was she made this creative act part of her dying, and the dying became itself a creative act. Um, I remember seeing distinctly there's a scene with a mosquito net in the middle of the jungle, and that was shot early on in the first couple of days. I remember when we set up the mosquito net and the actress crawled in and everything was coming down and... and, and uh, the AD called silence and I just suddenly saw very clearly that Leo was directing her death in that scene that I just hit I think it hit home for everyone and she was very happy to have made this film it was really satisfying for her of course it was not satisfying when towards the middle of the edit or the more towards the beginning of the edit after the first rough cut, it became clear she's not going to survive through the whole process and that she would not see her own film. The very, very end was very precipitous. It happened within weeks. But she was involved from her deathbed. She would talk to a friend of ours who was visiting who saw the first cut and she would say, in the middle of, you know, dealing with nephrostomy tubes and kidney failure, she would be talking to him about his opinion of, of, of the weaknesses of the film. Yes, I agree with you, this, this is a problem. You know, she'd be saying that while she was having lung failure. That doesn't mean that she was in death denial, that doesn't mean that, that she didn't want, she was afraid of dying. But other than that, you know, there was, there was I think, a fully creative choice it was a sort of an experiment in dying for her 
and and for the rest of us also because it became something that became part of her afterlife in which her presence continued with us in very important ways her intentions her her aesthetics her vision all of this thing became all of these things became part of how we also continued with her and without her through the making of the film through the finishing of the film but we kind of continued to use the present tense with her she's still active she has agency she has an effect on us and on things on the night of her death uh, as everybody had gathered around at that point um, there was a snowstorm on the anniversary of her death this year there was a snowstorm and that's also when a friend of ours turned around with the storm that just came this year and said Leo doesn't do anything half-assed <laughs> The film is called Icarus, A Vision. It was directed by Leonor Caraballo and Matteo Norzi. You can see some images of the sculptures, Object Breast Cancer, at Studio360.org. Our piece was produced by Eric Malinsky. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team here includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Krista Ripple, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazzari, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez, Judy Gu, Jackie Harris. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information is online at sloan.org. PRI Public Radio International Next time in Studio 360 What's the correct way to perform Shakespeare? One of the things that you want to do when you're working with actors on Shakespeare is encourage them to bring the colour out in words. Now, how to bring the colour out in the word war? How do you make it sound like war, you know? Well, it's already there for you in original pronunciation. Cry ever can unleash the dogs a war! That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Mm-hmm.